Good evening. And welcome to Rare Book School, uh, our first July 2008 session of three. We're trying to figure out which lecture this is. We think it's lecture 509 in the long series that began at Columbia University with a lecture by Michael Turner in 1971. Think how much I must know. <laughs> I've attended 400, I've attended 507 of them. I had a tooth pulled in one and uh, double scheduled myself in another, but aside from that, I know everything. <laughs> Our speaker this evening is Alice Hudson, who is curator of maps at New York Public Library and a legend in the field. And when Alice talks about the 10 best list, you better listen. Alice Hudson. I don't know about being legends. I think you have to die first. <laughs> or maybe that's sainthood. I'm not there. Um, I love this quote. I thought it was a good opening. Um, I'm wondering about those lights, too. Or is that too much back there? Ah. Anyway, greetings from New York Public Library. Uh, many of you have visited NYPL but may not have seen the latest iteration of the map division, the Lionel Pincus and Princess Ferial map division. Lionel is a lifelong friend of one of our trustees who personally invited the Pincus Endowment of $5 million, don't you love it, uh, for programming in the map division. This gift was then leveraged to also generate uh, funds for the renovation of the map division. Doesn't look that pretty anymore. We needed to put another picture in of what it really looks like now. It's not that neat. We have some 400,000 maps from the 17th century forward and 20,000 atlases and books about cartography, geographic information systems, computer mapping, and the history of cartography. Um, this, this talk evolved as I wrote it, so it's, uh, of course, different from when I started. And uh, one of the things I realized were people might want to know about some of the things I mentioned. So there is a handout later with a lot of the URLs and things that you might be interested in uh, following up on. Maps have been collected by those in power, royalty, the military, private collectors, and libraries for centuries. This book and while a bit dated, is an invaluable overview of maps as collectibles. Written by a former head of the British Library Map Room, it is a great introductory text to maps as information tools. Not a lot of pictures, but good text. But numerous books are available illustrating and describing antiquary maps, and here are a couple of recent ones um, from Jonathan Potter, a dealer in London, collecting antique maps. Uh, this is the book that accompanied the Chicago Map Fest and later the Baltimore Map Festival, um, which closed recently. Two fabulous map shows that I think probably got a lot of people interested in the field. In addition, um, oh, there's another one, Cartographia. Uh, they just came out from the Library of Congress. In addition, in terms of resources for um, people who are interested in antiquary maps but may not be specialists, 
Uh, there are map societies, local map societies around the country. Uh, Washington Map Society with their fabulous por uh, portal on their newsletter. Um, the New York Map Society with its online newsletter, Rumline. California Map Society with their lovely California as an island on the cover of their newsletter. Meeting and socializing with these map aficionados um, is in itself a wonderful resource for the non-map specialist. While theoretically the supply of maps is shrinking or limited, the number of dealers somehow continues to grow. Maybe they all have little printers and color scanners in their back rooms, I'm not sure. But maps remain plentiful if expensive. Major map dealers in the 40s and 50s in New York could be counted on one hand. And now we circulate a list at our reference desk with just under 20 dealers in the metropolitan area, dealers in antiquarian maps. There's another list for dealers in current maps. There must be a market to support these guys, and so maps remain eminently collectible. Often compared to collecting art, maps come out way ahead uh, price-wise. One can go to a dealer like Pageant in New York for less expensive items. And Pageant, by the way, closed their shop for several years, but they've reopened. So if, um, if you're interested in them, they're out there and you can find them on the web. Uh, or you can go to Graham Arrater for top-of-the-line, beautifully conserved, beautifully presented maps, atlases, and globes. Following are some of my favorite maps and a bit of commentary on historical and commercial values. Any of these maps I'm going to show would add visual interest to an exhibition. I've seen too many exhibitions of, say, at New York Public Library, I will admit, too many sort of 80 open books in a room, and I've longed for more visual interest to complement the text. I realize a lot of you are text-oriented, but uh, that's my bias. Text is not enough. Well-chosen maps add visual interest and spatial dimension to almost any exhibition. They illustrate graphically the distribution uh, and data that's not always obvious in text alone. One of the most interesting collectible topics is that of California as an island. And this is the mother list of those maps, some 100 maps from 1625 to 1770, appearing in the periodical map collector circle in 1964. This is a sample page, and I'm sorry it's not clear, uh, listing various maps, including the Peter Goose map, my favorite. And here is NYPL's digital gallery image with metadata derived from the cataloging record and the map itself. There's just something totally awesome for me about the idea of California as an island and the potential for this map to be a prediction of things to come if a really big one hits the West Coast. But I'm a New Yorker, you know, hey. And here's a recent Arcway Cohen and Tolliver catalog listing the map at $35,000. Now we have entire books on the subject of California as an island. Not just a list in a larger work, some examples, Cal State Fullerton's library exhibition on California as an island, 13 maps, 1587-1761, uh, that was published in 1984. Dora Polk's The Island of California, History of the Myth. Glenn McLaughlin and Nancy Mayo's The Mapping of California as an Island and Illustrated Checklist, 1995. John Laley's California is an island, an illustrated essay with 25 plates and a checklist of maps. Um, these are not on the handout, but you can do a keyword search, California Island map, and they'll come up 
<coughs> like uh, in WorldCat or uh, whatever. These three maps, this one, known as California, follow the pattern. This one fudges a little bit. If you notice, it might be attached or maybe not. Um, it took until 1747 for Ferdinand VI of Spain to issue a royal decree stating that it was attached. <laughs> Yet we, we know from these lists that maps of the island were still being printed 50 years later, so much for royal authority. And uh, people used the lists of these maps, particularly Californians, uh, as sort of life lists, and they try to collect as many of them as they can. So I think there are a lot of Californians and island collections in California. Um, I can't, don't think they'll all go to libraries at the same time, but who knows. Now here's America, 1635, with California firmly attached. This is uh, from the Blau Atlases. And in another place in that atlas, I think it's on the world map, uh, the Blau map has California as an island. So he's covering his rear end. You know, if you don't like it this way, hope so-and-so. <laughs> I have it another way. Um, if we think of 16th and 17th century Dutch art, we automatically go to Rembrandt, maybe Vermeer. Well, for maps, I go to the Blau family of map makers. I think the Blau maps are among the most skillfully drawn and beautifully designed and are highly collectible. This map, for example, continued to be printed for 30 years in their nine-volume Grand Atlas, which had separate volumes for Europe, Netherlands, Italy, France, Germany, England, Scotland, and England, Scotland, and Ireland, Asia, and in one volume, Africa, America, and Spain. <coughs> nine folio volumes. Uh, and some sets had fewer volumes, some sets have up to 12 volumes, though. Uh, but nine folio volumes to cover the Dutch-controlled world, or maybe the world controlled by the Dutch and East, Dutch East and West India companies. Today, we think a National Geographic Atlas is a big deal. This is nine folio-sized volumes, you know, this thick, bound in vellum, hand color, gorgeous, love them. Um, here it is in uh, America. Uh, this map of America is offered for $150 in 1962. And here we have it offered in Martai and Land's catalog for, in 2007 for $15,000. It's on the upper left. And if you notice on the right, there's another California as an island map. There's a theme here. Um, they're everywhere. Note the incredible text accompanying these. I know you can't read it. But look at the volume of text accompanying these images. Many dealers provide excellent bibliographic data to help map collectors decide on purchasing and exhibition label writers to create text, such as myself. Taken from Talis's Illustrated Atlas of 1851, this map of New York with its yuppie colors newly painted on caught my eye immediately at a book fair in Manhattan. I thought it would be great for use in a potential New York City-based exhibition. That was 15 years ago. And it will be in a forthcoming exhibition focusing on New York Harbor and the Hudson River, celebrating Henry Hudson's quadricentennial in 2009. This map was purchased about 10 years ago for $200 and was offered in uh, at $900 in 2003. So you know it's over 1,000 now. Many purists object to new color, 
and in some cases I do also. For example, I don't appreciate nautical charts having their uh, water areas colored in a beautiful sky blue. They should remain without color as that is how they are meant to be so that the markings on the charts showing navigational dangers are not hidden by color. However, in England and elsewhere, map and print colorists have professional status and are hired by dealers to pump up the saleability of some maps. I bought this map because it was pumped up with great color. It's very exciting for the public walking through an exhibition. Um, in addition, the exhibition is going to focus on New York Harbor and there are views of various aspects of the harbor that have been greatly enhanced here. The original had simple outline color and probably the, the main original color on that plate is the gold border, decorative border around the thing. Not much else was there. But for my purposes it's a real treasure for an exhibition. Tonight I had to include a map of Virginia and this is a classic surveyed by Thomas Jefferson. I mentioned him. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's father, Peter, and his partner, Joshua Fry. This is the first detailed mapping of the western areas of Virginia. The map is highlighted by a wonderful cartouche with traders on the dock waiting their ship to load, meanwhile enjoying a glass of wine helpfully served by a young slave. Not politically correct, but reflective of history. The map was published in London by Sayer and Jeffries, and here it is offered by Argosy Bookstore for $150 in 1964. And this series of prices, recent prices, uh, which you may not be able to read, but I think there's a $15,000 price on that third to the last column over there. Um, and this is from, this list of prices is from um, something called the Antique Map Prices CD-ROM and it's uh, CD and it's on the handout. So you can uh, follow up on that. This District of Columbia map is sometimes displayed as a square. Let's see if I can make this work. But the title wraps around this corner. So it's actually, a, that's what controls the map. And that is a diamond-shaped map of the territory of Columbia. This is the Andrew Ellicott map of the district, focusing on the physical features and boundaries. Published in 1794, yeah. it predicts the street grid to come. This carto bibliography of maps uh, of the district is one of a series. Similar ones exist for Manhattan and Chicago, and I think there are a couple more out there and planned. Descriptive text and a good size image make this sort of tool eminently useful for the collector and the librarian. The antique map price record, and again, sorry, uh, lists this in 2002 at $40,000. Um, in the text on the screen that you can't read, um, the old print shop is cited, the old print shop catalog is cited that this appeared in. So an interested party can follow up and examine the record in full. This is just a sample entry, but it illustrates the value of this data for the librarian, the collector, the researcher, and the assessment for the assessment of value. So far, the antique map price record covers from 1983 to 2006 and is keyword searchable, which is just fabulous for me. I've often used it to establish value for maps being loaned for exhibition to outside institutions. 
If my exact map is not found, I will average the values of similar maps of the same place and or the maps by that particular cartographer and come up with a figure useful for insurance purposes. This is an 1816 landmark map of North America by John Mellish, highlighting the Louisiana Purchase and territory as of, and U.S. territory as of 1816. Sadly, this map, worth around $60,000, was stolen from NYPL by E4 Smiley. Once in his hands, he mutilated the map by adding a full color wash over the states and even flipping India ink splatters on the map to subtly change its appearance further. Now that might have been a mistake. Maybe he dropped his pen, I don't know. Anyway, um, that's the original. He was, you know, pretty skillful, but it's not quite the same map. Um, he was enhancing the color to enhance the sale price. Uh, when the map was returned to NYPL, I insisted that it was not even ours. It was so unrecognizable. Now in this, it's interesting because here it's pretty clear, but when you're too close to it, it really looks very, very, very different. So I was ready to hand it back to the FBI, <laughs> but other people said, wait, wait. Um, so when you examine various very minor stains and tears and other identifying marks, it becomes clear that the maps, the two maps are one and the same. The map is before and after is one and the same. Um, it illustrates the value of digital records for antiquarian maps also because the cleverest mutilator will miss something. And he tried very hard to remove all uh, remnants of any kind of identifying marks for example, he scraped off ownership stamps. Um, he re he uh, bleached out stains. He removed um, coloring outside the line, I guess, in some places. I mean, he did. He really worked. But um, when you are trying to prove ownership or whatever, you you can really search for those little pinholes and things that are on the before and the after, and um, that's what it took. I'm not going to tell you everything you missed, but the identifying clues were there. And we were able to prove our ownership of this map and have the map returned to us, even though a couple of other institutions thought it might be theirs. This tiny 1756 map of Pennsylvania came to us as a gift, but the original dealer's price is at the lower right corner, $10. Published originally in the London Magazine, it was a black and white map. The, this key to maps in British periodicals is a valuable help for catalogers when trying to identify sources for these typically small, not always identified news maps. Um, there's not a price given there, but the source and information about this map is in this text. Color was added to this map, I would guess, in the 1930s. Mr. Levine lived near the Argosy bookstore, and he would often drop in on his way to and from his office. Uh, this is according to his widow. His collection of 40 maps came to us with many original price notations, most under $100. Today, this map can still be purchased for around $150, as it is only six and a half by eight inches. It was offered in 1986 for $98, so it was 10 times its 1930s value.
Um, this map I had re oops. Never mind. Moving right along. <laughs> I had the Pennsylvania map rescanned um, because our digital gallery did a very nice job, put it up on our website, and they removed the bottom information on uh, let's see if I can go back to it. The lower right corner, you can see that little dark pencil smudge. Somebody has drawn two lines across the $10 mark, but that's what he paid for it originally. So when our digital gallery put this up and I wanted a slide for you guys, I go there, I pull it up, and there it is without that interesting information on the edge. It was pretty ticked off and it was rescanned in the map room itself so that I could have it here. And now we're going to have a talk with the people who do our scans in the digital <laughs> lab. Um, I know it's not pretty, but on our website, you can go to a digital image that you like and you can uh, trim it. You can trim off what you don't want. So why should our lab do that, you know? So anyway, moving right along. This classic map of Greater Virginia, as it says somewhere on there, Virginia, or more accurately the Carolinas and the Outer Banks, is from a private collection donated to the map division in 1998. Its estimated value then was $8,500, up from $150 in 1963. Um, very odd pastel color has been added to this, and it's kind of faded out, but it's a lovely pastel pink and yellow, very strange. Um, and that's a new color that has been added to this map, which originally was from the English translation of the Mercator Hondius Atlas of 1628. This map and its variants has been described in detail in another regional cartobibliography, the Southeast in Early Maps by William P. Cummings. I think a 12-year-old, oops, hmm. hold on. Why do I get the feeling there's a missing, there it is, sorry. I think a 12-year-old colored this particular map. Uh, it's, a, it's an odd combination of, <coughs> sorry, celestial and terrestrial map of the world, um, probably from a Bible as can be surmised by the biblical illustrations at the margins. And at the upper right corner, uh, Eve is transporting herself out of Adam's ribcage. Um, but the, there's a whole series of uh, illustrations of various biblical events around the margins. Um, but it is odd in that it's not really a double hemisphere map. It's a presentation of both the sky and the earth, uh, which is suitable for a biblical map, you know, God controlling the universe, earth and sky. Um, Rodney Shirley, in his book, The Mapping of the World, mentions the modern course of the Mississippi on that map and a dedication that helps to date it around 1699. So our copy... Um, uh, possibly came out of a book called Sacred Geography or Scriptural Maps, but we believe ours is a later state because it has Philip Lee's imprint on it. And here is a description of the map from, um, uh, what's his name's book? I'm not tired. Rodney Shirley's uh, book on maps of the world. I 
I've saved this map for last among my ten because I didn't want to weep all the way through my talk. This map was stolen by Mr. Smiley and has not been returned. Many maps have been, but not this one, and I take it personally. This map I had twice written about for publication. It was one plate in a Samuel and John Thornton two-volume atlas of nautical charts, circa 1706. The original leather bindings uh, covers had disintegrated, and so we had removed those, saved them, and encapsulated the 173 plates, now 172, the largest single collection of Thornton charts anywhere, beautifully hand-colored. This New Jersey plate is important in NYPL because it covers an important part of our market area. And we want to be a resource for the history of New Jersey and its mapping. Fortunately, we have the digital image. Unfortunately, Mr. Smiley says he can't remember how this was disposed of. Um, but we've publicized it, and we hope someday to have its return. Only one other copy of this map is known. Therefore, that's it. There's only one known now. And it happily is held by Rutgers University in New Jersey. Based on the image in John Snyder's book, The Mapping of New Jersey, it appears to be the same state, but without the beautiful hand color typical of our Thornton maps. It's priceless. Insurance values are subjective, but there are some current useful resources, um, such as Antique Map Price Record, which is a CD that you can purchase. This is volume 21, covering 1983 to 2006, and the Antique Map Price Guide, which is available online. These are both subscription sources, uh, services. Um, and they're a fabulous help for uh, you know, establishing values. The IRS considers the librarian or curator an interested party in gift evaluations, and so we do not supply values but we certainly supply information from these sources, such as old maps and dealer catalogs in our files. It is then up to the donor to take further action. In addition, at NYPL and other research map collections, such as the Library of Congress, there are historical files of antiquarian map dealer catalogs going back decades. One can get depressed looking at the Argosy catalog or Nebenzahl's compass or the old print shop catalog um, from the 1950s or an old map with a $50 price penciled on its back. Note this 1952 catalog, which we had to Xerox because the paper was falling apart, with an offering of 38 elephant folio maps for $50. Okay, any one of these maps today might go for several thousand dollars. These old catalogs in our collection go back much further in time than the CDs uh, and the online sources. I suspect those uh, people responsible for those particular online sources are going to try to go further back. Um, but we have the hard copy, and so does Library of Congress and other research collections, and they are most valuable for the perspective they provide on changing prices through time. You can also use the uh, file of antiquarian dealer catalogs to track the sales of particular maps, and you can almost track individuals through time as it, cha as it changes hands from dealer to dealer. Uh, and it also um, makes clear the rise and occasional fall in map prices. 
They often supply important interpretive and historical information about particular maps. As I pointed out earlier, I think it was the Martian land catalog, which is otherwise very hard to track down. Current collectability varies by region, and we've told people on the East Coast to buy Asia, and we've told people on the West Coast to buy Europe, that is, collectors who walk in and talk to us about, oh, I think I'm going to start collecting maps. But that is only the vaguest of advice. Dealers are aware of regional interests, and this is proven by the Miami Map Fair, held each year, the first weekend in February, uh, depending on when the Super Bowl is played and if it's in Miami. Otherwise, the map fair moves uh, forward or back. And from my perspective, I go, New York in February, Miami in February. Okay. Pay me to go, and the library actually does, and I get to go down there and buy maps. Um, some 50 dealers participate from around the world. It may be more than that, and Joel can probably correct me. Um, but from around the world, and when I say they know about regional uh, interests, they overload the exhibition area with Havana and Cuba maps. And it must be successful because they keep doing it every year. I get very tired of Havana and Cuba maps when I'm visiting the Miami map here. But that's not all that's there. There's a lot there. And it's a wonderful, wonderful learning opportunity to just go and browse and play and overdose on too many maps in one place, but it's a lot of fun. Um, and there are, there's more than one map fair. There's a Rocky Mountain map fair in Denver uh, every fall, and there are map fairs in London and in other places around the world. Not New York yet, it's too much work. The publication of any important cartobibliography on a particular region, such as Africa, will result in a surge of interest, and the book might well become a particular collector's life list of maps to acquire over time. Much like a birder, a collector will go after their favorite California's an island, for example, or Africa, or whatever the region, with focused attention, checking off their acquisitions as they go. In the library setting, the collector will often seek to find comparable editions or states of maps seen at nearby auction house or gallery. We always know when a local auction is coming up, because uh, the collectors come into the map division and we see them hovering around versions of offered maps that are found in our collections. What are they looking for? Sometimes it's coloring or matching up the description in the catalog with the real thing or figuring out if the map in the catalog is really what they want to spend six or $8,000 or $10,000 on. A library provides a haven where a collector can focus real attention on an item. And most of the time, no one else connected to the map is in the vicinity. If you go to the gallery or the auction house to see the map, you're limited by displaying interest in particular items, um, uh, whoever else is in the room, and perhaps even limited by time to even carefully examine the maps. We're very aware that the library provides a neutral arena for the collector, for the dealer, for the scholar. Occasionally we make connections between readers who happen to be in the room at the same time and we know they're both interested in similar materials. But privacy is paramount and so making those connections is rare and we do try to respect reading privacy. Collectors also donate their treasures to libraries and don't you love that? Locally you are aware of the Dr. Seymour Schwartz's amazing gift to UVA. That's the press release on it. I wish I had the slide of that wonderful banner. 
Um, and his collection of early American maps is to be housed in the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library, and there's a wonderful exhibit there right now, which I've managed to visit twice and haven't gotten enough out of it yet. So I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, map exhibit just next door. At NYPO, we received two collections in recent years, from Lawrence H. Slaughter, uh, that's a description, and from the estate of John H. Levine. John was the guy who walked past the Argosy bookstore in the 30s and spent $10 on Pennsylvania. Boston Public has received the placement, not the ownership, of the Norman Leventhal map collection. They have a great website. And Mr. Leventhal is funding the establishment of a map center at Boston Public Library which involves renovation of space within the Central Library and major administrative support. The State Library of Virginia received the Alan Voorhees map collection and its donor also had previously placed copies of his maps in the Berkeley Hotel, which I believe now are all digital copies of the maps, but they're gorgeous. Uh, the Berkeley Hotel downtown Richmond to cartographically inspire visitors there. Uh, we librarians are thrilled with such gifts, but more than one dealer has expressed to me very real anger and distress that these maps did not return to the market but are virtually lost to storage in libraries. Uh, I had to deal with um, quite a firm argument on that when the Lawrence Slaughter collection came to NYPL because that, from his perspective, virtually lost to storage in libraries. I don't think I store maps. I make them accessible to people to use and study and enjoy. But he was a very angry um, local dealer in New York. I had to chuckle at that in a way because the Howard Welsh map collection, which was a major private collection, uh, was sold after his death in the early 80s, I think. And part of that collection was purchased by Lawrence Slaughter. And so, I'm now happy to say that those maps did sell at one point um, and did come to us. And I knew Howard Welsh and I knew Larry Slaughter. And so it's very exciting for us to have those maps at New York Public. <clears throat> and what the dealer may not always recognize is that the collectors make use of these library collections for their own learning and discovery about old maps. And then they often go buy something. Sale prices alone have not affected library security issues overall in recent years. Thefts from libraries have awakened us all to the security issues surrounding interesting visual materials, uh, such as wildlife illustrations and maps from ordinary old government documents. You know, who cares, GovDocs. Well, where are the GovDocs in your library? Are they in the open stacks? Where's the serial set? A little used storage area? We saw in the um, uh, cataloging visual materials class today, some beautiful little views taken out of the railroad surveys, which would sell for a pretty penny as collectibles. The recent thefts of hundreds of government documents, um, especially maps in western Washington, the Gilbert Bland affair up and down the east coast and over to Michigan, the E. Forbes Smiley thefts of maps from Harvard, Yale, Boston Public, New York Public, and other unnamed collections that Forbes used to talk about, uh, have all been supremely upsetting. The bland thefts were written up in the book The Island of Lost Maps, which one librarian called a guide to map theft for undergrads. Tony Campbell, 
the retired head of the British Library Map Room, now maintains a website on the history of cartography with one page, very, or one aspect of that page, specifically dedicated to information about map thefts. Those thefts have devastated collections, individual librarians, and dealers who were duped, and have been a lesson in curatorial responsibility no one could ever have learned in library school. I do not remember the word theft or thievery ever being mentioned, nor was I taught about fundraising budgets, public speaking, or dealing with donors and scholars. Surprise! <laughs> Guess what I do all the time. Recent thefts have brought about much discussion at ALA, and the Map and Geography Roundtable has created guidelines. Oops, there's the Island of Lost Maps. What about that? And there's Tony Campbell's website. Sorry. And there is the Map and Geography Roundtable's guidelines aimed at the map collector, map curator specifically. In addition, the Rare Books and Manuscripts section of ACRL has updated its security guidelines. And both of these are online and worthy of serious study and application. And I have to underline the word application. Um, I talk to people and I find so many people who sort of know these are out there, but they haven't read them. Well, if you haven't read them, then you're not applying them in your library. You have to read them and you have to pay attention to what they say. Um, they're not laws, they're suggestions, they're great ideas on how to secure your collections. The uh, RBMS guidelines are under review and will probably soon be revised and reissued. We have every desire to make our collections as accessible as possible, especially in a public library. That's the whole point of our being. That is behind the desperate urge to digitize everything in sight, access. We're very proud in the map division when we can pull out a William Blau atlas for someone from Amsterdam who has never been allowed to touch the thing and who may only have seen digital imagery. I've had Dutch readers practically in tears over the actuality of handling these rare materials. One said, in my country, these are behind locked glass cases. This is such an honor to be able to touch and appreciate the artistry of these Dutch treasures. And he was trembling with joy at the moment. In the past, we have trusted longtime researchers implicitly. They become part of the furniture. That's the mistake. Sure, sit down with this folder of maps of Paris and enjoy. The next reader, a few months later, discovers the missing maps, and by then it is too late. The Atlas researcher discovers the 1846 map of Texas, torn out of a simple school atlas you wouldn't look at. I mean, you just, who cares? School atlas for the United States. But it makes us very aware that the 19th century is now a collectible era, and not just 16th, 18th century maps. Sadly, in recent years, the relationship with the public has been irreparably damaged. Now when a reader comes into the map division and says he or she wants to look at antiquarian maps, we no longer applaud their interest and go the extra mile to help them see as much as possible. Now the question is why? Who are you? And what do you want to see? And yes, you can have up to five items at a time. And by the way, sit over there where I can watch you goes against everything I ever wanted to do as a library. Identity cards, handing over firstborn children, limitations on access, <laughs> enhanced security operations, which I can't talk about, are now in place. 
and if any more maps disappear, I may be out on the corner with this guy. <laughs> Thank you very much. science fiction story that I've not been able to find. A man is living in San Francisco and he has access to a very special computer which has the ability to predict earthquakes. His computer says there's going to be a major earthquake. You need to go to Pacific Heights. Well that's far western San Francisco but it would seem to be counterintuitive. But he did it, and you know, by God, the entire eastern part of the United States fell into the Atlantic. <laughs> Leaving California as an island. <laughs> We're glad that Alice Hudson is gainfully employed and hope she will do so for 10,000 years. Please come and have a drink with our speaker in the Altman Library first floor staff lounge. <laughs> <laughs>